You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Huawei is on the U.S. entity list, and U.S. exporters have been quick to notice. Security concerns are now expected to shift to the undersea cable market. Hacktivism seems to have gone into eclipse. The EU enacts a sanctions regime to deter election hacking. Facebook shutters inauthentic accounts targeting African politics. Salesforce is restoring service after an unhappy upgrade. The OG user forum has been hacked. And don't worry about a hacker draft. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, May 20th, 2019. Huawei is now on the U.S. entity list, which means that U.S. companies will need a special license from the Bureau of Industry and Security to do business with them. Another of U.S. chip companies, including Qualcomm and Intel, have stopped deliveries of chips to Huawei. Huawei anticipated this rainy day, and the company has stockpiled a year's worth of U.S. goods necessary to sustain production. The stockpiling would make most sense if Huawei is betting that U.S. sanctions will be relatively short-lived, as they were in the case of ZTE's near-death experience in 2018, when the company was pulled back from the brink by a U.S. agreement to levy a big fine, extract some promises, and call it bygones. But it remains to be seen whether Huawei's tenure on the entity list will be a short-term trade negotiation ploy or something more enduring. Equally or more serious consequences are expected from Google's weekend suspension of Huawei's Android license. Huawei immediately loses access to Android updates, and new versions of its devices will no longer have access to Gmail or the Play Store. The loss of these licenses will not be mitigated by stockpiling, And recall that the Android ecosystem is very important to Huawei. Huawei has been active in public, denouncing the sanctions as one would expect, and arguing that the U.S. needs Huawei as much as Huawei needs the Americans. The company points out that it's a big customer of U.S. tech firms, including those that have just cut Shenzhen off. For all these difficulties, Huawei hasn't been idle in another market where it's likely to bang up against security issues, The company sees its near-term future in the undersea cable market, and it's either laying or upgrading some 100 such cables. It's worth noting that a proposed Huawei cable to the Solomon Islands brought the company into an early open conflict with Australia. Last June, it was decided that Huawei wouldn't get the business, and that was due to Australian objections and some Australian competition. It was that cable incident that stiffened the Australian government's security concerns about Huawei. Of the three traditional groupings of threat actors, criminals, hacktivists, and nation-states, one, hacktivists, seems to have gone into eclipse. 
IBM's X-Force looked at hacktivist actions that were credibly disclosed and publicly reported, and in which, quote, a specific group claimed responsibility for the incident and where there is quantifiable damage to the victim, end quote. They found a nearly 95% drop in such attacks since 2015. In fact, none have taken place in 2019. X-Force is inclined to think this is more quiescence than disappearance, and that hacktivism could reappear under the right conditions, but there seems to be trends that make this unlikely. More effective law enforcement, the arrest of some hacktivist leaders, and a lack of consensus about the causes hacktivists ought to take up are obstacles to a resurgence. The third observation is particularly interesting. Hacktivist groups tend to be both anarchic and governed by consensus, which creates a natural tension. As causes drift or expand, consensus tends to dissipate. The city of Baltimore continues to struggle through the ransomware infestation it sustained recently. The CyberWire's Tamika Smith has an update. Baltimore city government is the latest to be hit by a ransomware attack. They joined Atlanta, Orange County in North Carolina, and Washington County in Pennsylvania, among the municipalities to be hit in the past year and a half. Crippling phone systems, hospital records, and any documents of value, all for mostly one cause, get paid. Roughly $3.6 million is what victims reported loss to the FBI last year. That tally was created by the Internet Crimes Complaint Center. So that's an interesting number. Ransomware, I think for any incident response company or threat research company or the FBI, it's, it's a very difficult problem to scope. Special Agent Adam Lawson works with the FBI's Cyber Division in the Major Cyber Crimes Unit. He explains that the IC3 report only shows what is submitted to their center. He says they know that number is significantly higher. You know, that does not take into account um, loss of business, um, wages, files, getting new equipment. It doesn't take into account... Um, any any third-party remediation services hired by a victim. Ransomware attacks are costly and cripple basic services. On WBAL's TV 11, Baltimore-area resident Darris Johnson and his family were preparing to celebrate the purchase of a new home. Not any longer. Now all they can do is wait. Our loan and getting our loan locked, our rate locked in. It's just so many things that are up in the air right now that we don't know what's going to happen with all of it. This time, local officials confirmed the ransomware strain was Robinhood. Early reports say this is a dangerous new strain of hidden terror ransomware being sent by an unknown hacker collective. Attacks like the one on Baltimore City are growing increasingly common. FBI Special Agent Lawson says it's affecting the public and private sectors. And we are seeing a larger number of um, companies or city governments, municipalities, things like that, we're seeing larger numbers in that arena uh, of victims. Um, and we're also seeing higher ransom demands of those victims. After a ransomware attack, it could take weeks or months to rebuild a system. Ben Yellen, who's a regular on the CyberWire, says prevention needs to be the first step. First of all, I should say that most of the work in preventing damage from a ransomware attack, unfortunately for Baltimore City, comes before the attack hits. And that's having continuity of operations plans so that you know uh, exactly how you can resume your essential functions. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland for Health and Homeland Security. 
He says prevention can be creative, too. If the absolute worst comes to pass and that you have a crippling ransomware attack where the network goes down for an extended period of time, you even have a plan to devolve some of your agency's functions to another institution. Baltimore officials and the FBI are being cautious about how they're working to resolve this ransomware attack. One thing remains clear. They have a choice to make. Pay the ransom or restore the systems from a backup or from scratch. In the meantime, pressure is mounting for residents like Darius Johnson and his family who depend on the city services. This is becoming a new reality for cities and municipalities around the country. They're bracing themselves for a cyber war against the new age criminal, technologically savvy and boundaryless. For the CyberWire, I'm Tamika Smith. And joining me now in studio is Tamika Smith. Um, Tamika, welcome. And uh, so bring us up to date. First of all, how long has Baltimore been dealing with this ransomware attack? May 7th is the first day that officials basically came out and said they were going to shut down the services. And this word came from Mayor Bernard Young. Hmm. And so where do things stand now? What's up and running and, and what's not? Now here's what's interesting. Many of the services were impacted, including real estate services, health care services, and even something as small as being able to pay a water bill. Hmm. Um, as of right now, the city is being able to do limited services when it comes to real estate. And the real estate industry is helping along with this push. Right now, anyone buying a home in Baltimore can obtain certificates showing that there are no liens on property so that they would be able to get insurance on their homes. Now, Baltimore has been keeping information pretty close to the vest throughout this. Uh, have they opened up any any word on, on how they're planning on dealing with this? Are they going to pay the ransom? Are they restoring from backups? Anything coming out of the city? During the weekend, there was some word that the mayor may be buckling down a little bit to pay the ransom, but hmm. nothing official. As of right now, the FBI is mum on how they want to move forward, and that's totally understandable. Hmm. All right, Tamika Smith, thanks for joining us. At the end of last week, the European Union enacted a sweeping sanctions regime that it hopes will impose serious and swift consequences on organizations or individuals found responsible for cyber attacks against the EU and its allies. The penalties are principally travel bans and asset freezes. The EU hopes the measure will have some deterrent effect against any who would interfere with this week's elections, which conclude this Sunday. Facebook has shut down accounts allegedly run by Israeli political marketing firm Archimedes Group for coordinated inauthenticity. A total of 65 Facebook accounts, 161 pages, 23 groups, 12 events, and 4 Instagram accounts were closed. The operation has apparently been going on for some time beneath whatever radar is being used in Menlo Park. Facebook says more than $800,000 has been spent on advertising associated with these accounts since 2012, That's about $114,000 a year, since we have a calculator and you might not, especially if you're listening while you're driving. Targets were in various African nations, and the goal was evidently political manipulation. A number of the pages taken down supported or denigrated particular candidates and parties, misrepresented themselves as new organizations, or posted material claiming to have leaked from various political actors. The Archimedes Group seems to be a hired gun in all of this. The inauthenticity was detected in the usual ways, implausible geolocation, linguistic goofs, and so on. A script error in Salesforce's Pardot service affected customers beginning Friday. Service is currently under restoration. 
An upgrade changed Salesforce's production environment in such a fashion to break permission settings in customer accounts. So, for example, any employee in a given company might have both read and write access to documents the company did not intend for such wide distribution. OG Users, a popular forum that, despite its bland self-description, traded digital contraband, was hacked by other criminals. The data taken are said to include usernames, MD5 hashed passwords, emails, IP addresses, source code, website data, and private messages. How does the site describe itself? As a community-driven online marketplace forum of virtual goods. We host a marketplace for OG gamer tags, Instagram accounts, Kick, and much more. That's how they wrote it. A lot of the community's drivers would appear to be gamers and low-level skids out for a quick buck and some virtual street cred. Krebs on Security describes them simply as an account hijacking forum. Scare headlines in CSO and elsewhere suggest that the U.S. Selective Service System, that is, the draft, gone since 1973, might someday return. One presumed goal of a revived draft would be to enable the U.S. military to conscript hackers. But hackers? We wouldn't sweat this one. The Orioles are likely to contend for a pennant this year than you are to receive greetings from the president. Cyber services are the sort of thing that the government contracts for. And anyway, think about it. It's relatively easy for a sergeant to keep an eye on three or so unwilling conscripts to make sure they don't foul up while they're cleaning the grease trap at the mess hall. Keeping an eye on the sort of creative incompetence a disaffected coder might bring is another matter altogether. But if you've decided you really must devote worry to this because you've decided to overlook more probable disasters, like contracting cobalt beer syndrome at Granny's 4th of July picnic, or an asteroid strike, or being selected by the gray aliens for your superior genetic potential, or you're simply a Country Joe and the Fish reenactor, or a member of an Arlo Guthrie cover band, and we understand there are a lot of you out there, why then book your ticket to Canada before it's too late? Just make sure the expiration date is something around the end of the 22nd century. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. 
Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland. He's also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. I uh, saw an article come by from The Record, and this was about researchers at University of Waterloo who are working on an app uh, that would help protect people's privacy at the border. What are they working on here? Well, people are concerned about uh, reporters or other people who may have important files on their on their laptop or on their phones uh, that they don't want other people to gain access to, including border uh, security officials. And, of course, you can try to encrypt the data on your laptop or on your phone. But then there's a the concern that when you're stopped at the border and they identify these encrypted files on your device, they may ask you for the password or the key that's needed to unlock that device. Hmm. And so people have been trying to come up with different sort of solutions that would address this uh, this, the, the, this potential uh, event. And so what these researchers have proposed is an idea where you would essentially use a password or use a cryptographic key to encrypt your files, but then you wouldn't even know the key yourself. You would basically send it either to another individual or some set of individuals uh, who would all need to be compromised in order to get access to your device. And even if these border officials were to ask you for the password, you fundamentally would not be able to give it to them because you don't know it yourself. Hmm. Yeah, and one of the interesting things about this that caught my eye was that uh, it seems as though you can you can sort of split up the password among a group of people, and you would need a certain number of them to be able to unlock your information. That's right. This is a basic uh, idea called threshold cryptography that uh, has been researched actually for a couple of decades, but now these researchers are trying to put it into practice and use it for protecting uh, encrypted files on, on people's devices. So it's a, it's a compelling case here. Are there any drawbacks? Well, I think that I, I've seen some other approaches that try to hide the presence of encrypted files on someone's device altogether. And I think that can be uh, potentially a better approach because the issue with this one is that even though it's true that you won't be able to give up the password and so the border officials will not be able to get access to your files – they will become suspicious, right? They will observe that you have these encrypted files on your device. They're going to know that you're refusing to give up your password. That's very likely to make them detain you and potentially then investigate you further and try to understand why it is that you're not giving up the uh, the information about these files. Right. So I'm a little bit suspicious overall about how well this will play out in practice and how many people would be willing then to be detained rather than uh, either give up the files or come up with some other mechanism for dealing with it. Yeah, that's interesting. Also, sort of uh, bringing your friends into this or your colleagues as well that uh, it could, uh, I don't know, cause a he headache for them. Yeah, well, there was an interesting comment in, in the article. They were saying that this is for people who would uh, rather not, give, essentially rather not give up their files than give up the password after being tortured. Now, you know, the funny, or the, not, I shouldn't say funny, but the thing about that is if you're being tortured, you might actually prefer to give up your password rather than tell them, well, I don't have it, just continue torturing me, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> uh, so, so it's not, you know, like I said, it's, it, there, there are some physical assumptions, you know, assumptions that they're making about the real world and about how people uh, prefer to operate in the real world right. that may not be true for most people. Yeah, no, it's an inter interesting edge case, I suppose. Uh, all right, well, as always, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.